two-thirds of Republicans say they think January 6th was a legitimate political protest. So, you know, I don't think I'm always going to be able to speak to everyone all at once, right? But what's really scary is if there's no one out there even listening who disagrees with me, right? Like that, that would be worse. Um, and I fear that that's happening. Increasingly, the places I write for are just not believed by half the country. And I don't think they're always doing enough to try to rebuild that relationship. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The past week has been filled with images of high conflict. There was the shocking, violent right-wing attacks on government institutions in Brazil, which appear to be a copycat of the January 6th insurrection by Trump supporters from two years ago. Then there was the election of Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a madcap four-day, 15-round epic in which a small, far-right faction of the GOP held the rest of Congress hostage to its demands. How do we break out of this cycle in which disagreements quickly spiral into good-versus-evil, us-versus-them battles? And how did we get here in the first place? Journalist Amanda Ripley tackles these questions in her best-selling book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. Ripley was an investigative reporter for Time magazine and writes regularly for The Atlantic and The Washington Post. She is also author of the best-selling book, The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way, and she hosts the Slate podcast, How To?, where last year she interviewed then-candidate and now Vermont Congresswoman Becca Ballant in a piece called How to Run for Office Without Being a Jerk. In her book High Conflict, Ripley writes about how good people get captured by high conflict and how they break free. Ripley's book came out in 2021, a few months after the January 6th insurrection. I began by asking her what she thought when she saw Trump supporters attacking the Capitol that day. Well, you know, I experienced it on a couple levels. Um, The book was actually done and about to come out. So all of this was not surprising to me. And I'd been really worried about an escalation of political conflict and political violence in the U.S. for a long time, mostly because I'd been following around people who are experts in political violence all over the world. And they were very worried about political violence in the US. So it was not something that surprised me, but it was something that saddened me. Um, so it was very hard, I think, for most of us to to watch. And as someone who lives in Washington, DC and has a family here, it was also disturbing and scary. Um, and you know, I, I have spent time on Capitol Hill and it's just, it was hard to process because my interactions with the Capitol Hill police have been not frequent, but um, not, let's say, warm. I mean, they are not, they are not typically very forgiving uh, for if you jaywalk, for example. Um, I mean, it's pretty tightly controlled place. They take it very seriously. So to see, to see the place just kind of get um sieged so quickly was really hard to understand um and remains hard to understand but um it also was helpful to un- to sort of put all of that in the context of how people behave in high conflict 
which is what this is. I, you know, we have been seeing, of course, with the anniversary and also with the January 6th commission, um, many of the images of that day again and again. And I am always struck by those images and the expressions on the faces of the Trump supporters, the rage, the defiance, the straining neck muscles, the hate as they attacked police officers, um, though the attackers included many law enforcement officers themselves. How are people, how are those people driven to acts of political violence from your own research? I mean, I don't separate myself from those people. Like, I think we are all very susceptible to this kind of thing. And I, I feel like when I, when I look at mob activity like that, like we just saw in Brazil, um, what I think most about is the climate of fear and threat and blame that has allowed this to happen, right? And that's usually generated by leaders, by influential voices in the media um, and in politics, but it's the same kind of recipe over and over and over again, right? Which is generate a feeling of threat, that there's a crisis, identify a villain, and then proclaim yourself as the hero who can save the day. That is how again and again, again, uh, politicians and pundits have managed to cast a sort of spell of high conflict over people. Um, There's actually a great story in the Washington Post the other day, which I, I haven't seen very many stories that managed to thread this needle because it's difficult to do, but it was about one of the men who was uh, in that riot and who was accused and convicted very recently, he was sentenced, um, and he, it sort of followed him as he goes back to home in Utah, lives in a small town, and as he sort of vacillates between different narratives about what he was doing that day. And it's fascinating to read because you see how he, he thought of himself as a patriot, as a hero, and then he gets back to his hotel that night and watches the news coverage and suddenly feels like something had gone horribly wrong and he starts to recast the narrative. Then he gets home to his town in Utah and he's greeted as a hero by a lot of people. So then he starts to once again, reevaluate what has happened, trying to make sense of it. And then um, the thing that really stuck with me from that story is at some point he's quoted saying, you know, to the effect of, you know, my life is pretty good. I have a wife, uh, I have kids, I love my family, I have a nice house. Why do I have this worry? This worry I can't shake that something's gone terribly wrong in the country, right? And that's the piece of it that I think was the most interesting. Where did that worry come from? What percentage of it is based on real things? What percentage of it it is ginned up? And are we ultimately missing the real things in this climate? Whenever people feel like there is an imminent threat, you're going to see more violence, right? It doesn't take a lot of people for this kind of thing to happen. So I guess that's a long answer, but there's a lot of things going on there for sure. And and different people have different motivations. You began your answer by saying you don't separate yourself from, I I referred to those people and you gently uh, corrected me and said, you don't see them as those people. You see them as yourself as one of them. What do you mean by that? I feel in myself the 
the tendency to want to cast blame, to want to identify a villain, to want to feel like this, this whole game is rigged and finally my side is going to uh, make it right. I can relate to that, you know, even though my politics are different in a lot of ways from, from a lot of people who were there that day, I can relate to the emotion. And I think it is mostly about emotion at this point. And so the more we can talk about emotion, group behavior, identity, psychology, the less mysterious this is going to be. Let's move to another image of conflict that I mentioned from this week. And that was the scene in Congress of this four day long epic to elect a speaker. Now, we think of elected officials as maybe a little more sophisticated, maybe not prone to the kind of propaganda. But um, I'm curious what you saw in that uh, marathon of voting and political conflict. You know, I don't feel qualified to understand the many layers of personalities, motivations, hurt feelings, um, strivings and aspirations that created that particular scene. I would say, though, that as we continue to elect conflict entrepreneurs into office, we would expect to see more of this kind of behavior, right, the sort of extreme behavior uh, people who, you know, always feel like they're victims who need a lot of attention and there's really no end to it. Um, that may or may not have been part of what happened right that day, but it's certainly not the first time we've seen um, people in Congress act in their own interests um, under the cloak of righteousness in order to get attention to feel like they are important to um, leverage the power that they have so you know, that kind of behavior is, again, kind of par for the course in a climate of high conflict where you've created a bunch of ways to raise up conflict entrepreneurs, right? Like that's what we've done as a country in our social media platforms in our news media, like it is a great time to be a conflict entrepreneur. And here again, I should say before I get on my high horse, I can be a conflict entrepreneur, you know, it's easy explain to what you mean by that term conflict entrepreneur. Okay, so yeah, conflict entrepreneur is any person or organization that exploits and inflames conflict for their own ends. They may do it consciously, they may do it subconsciously, but they seem to really delight in uh, stirring the pot and twisting the knife, whatever analogy you want to use, and they um, tend to create narratives of victimhood and grievance. Um, they tend to always feel humiliated and victimized. And they usually, conflict entrepreneurs usually are damaged or troubled in some way that they haven't either been willing or able uh, to get help with. So they kind of spread the pain around. And there have always been and always will be conflict entrepreneurs. What's new is um, a sort of culture and media business model that celebrates conflict entrepreneurs and doesn't really see them for for what they're doing and the effect they're having on everyone else. Who do you think of as some of the most impactful uh, conflict entrepreneurs on the scene today? 
I think there are a lot of them. I mean, I think, you know, Tucker Carlson would be one that I've um, studied a little bit about just to try to understand him better. And if you, so let's take a step back for a second. We were talking about January 6th. So the latest polling I've seen said something like two thirds of Republicans say that January 6th was a legitimate protest. Um, and that's an increase from a year ago. So it's from a from the Democrats point of view moving in the wrong direction, right? So despite all of those very powerful uh, January 6 committee hearings, despite uh, the impeachment efforts, despite everything that has come out from text messages and so forth, actually more Republicans see it as legitimate protests than uh, a year ago. So what is going on there? Well, lots of different things and there's not one answer, but um, if you spend 10 minutes watching Tucker Carlson talk about January 6th, it's hard not to start to see how this happens, right? Because what he does is he just sows doubt, like sows doubt. A lot of what he says isn't false. It's just, he's like always looking for a crack, right? And he's, he just plants little seeds of doubt and, and there's this permanent Washington, he calls it, the elites who are uh, always behind these sinister plots, right? Um, so he sees January 6th, he says, as, you know, the most important thing that happened that day was the killing of Ashley Babbitt, right, who was one of the protesters. Um, and he says, why isn't the media talking about this, right? So he's, he's planting seeds of doubt and sowing doubt. And that's what conflict entrepreneurs do is they're contrarian, right? Which I love, I love to be contrarian. I love to be argumentative. I love to think for myself, right? But they're doing it because they are um, spreading around pain and, and, and anxiety. And so the reasons they're doing it, the way they do it, that's where we get into trouble. Um, and he didn't always used to be this way, which is interesting to me, but often conflict entrepreneurs are rewarded and then they get themselves in a corner where they feel like that's the only thing they can do in society and be valued. Yes. No, the the storyline, the trajectory of Tucker Carlson's career is quite fascinating. And yes, he did not always uh, was not like this. In fact, he was fired and, you know, from a number of high profile media jobs where let's just say lost his gig. But he found one now that has been very durable and has earned him, you know, I think it's the highest watch show on cable. Um, so um, you tweeted on January 6th about how to prevent another January 6th. And it was a three part tweet. One was addressed to journalists, one to politicians, and one for regular people. Um, I wonder if you could sort of capture uh, what you think are the key interrupters of that would be needed to prevent another January 6th for these different actors? Well, you know, what I've learned in, in sort of following, I spent the past, you know, six years following people who were stuck in really, really toxic conflict, whether it's political conflict or gang conflict or even civil war, and then shifted to what we might consider healthy conflict or good conflict, right? So the problem isn't conflict, it's this kind of conflict that feeds on itself, that becomes conflict for conflict's sake, that is violent, right? That's the problem. So the whole question becomes, how do you prevent that and stay in healthier good conflict or shift from one to the other? And um, probably the most 
useful insights that I've learned that apply to political violence have come from Curtis Toller, who's the former gang leader who does gang violence interruption work in Chicago. And what he's taught me is that, you know, violence comes from this sense of threat, right? This fear that's in the air, this sense that your group is better than the other group and your group has been humiliated. When that happens, when influential people put those narratives out there, you know, that half of America hates democracy or half of America hates children or whatever, that kind of thing, most people are not going to become violent. But a small number of people, and it doesn't take that many, hear that and become violent because they feel like they have no choice, right? And so that's a very dangerous thing. And Curtis's whole challenge in dealing with gang violence, so most gang violence today starts on social media. When one person from one group disrespects another group, and then this feels humiliating, and then it feels like there needs to be revenge, right? And then someone gets shot, and then on and on and on it goes, right? So he spends a lot of his time trying to convince the people who have the most followers online, and you see the analogy to politics, right, or Tucker Carlson, trying to convince them that their words do matter, that this constant ginning up of threat and fear against your neighbor is really dangerous. And so the advice that I've tried to summarize there in that tweet thread, right, is First of all, depends on who you are, right? If you're a journalist, the thing to do if you want to prevent political violence is to stop amplifying these voices of conflict entrepreneurs, right? And start to amplify and tell great stories about people who are resisting those impulses, about people who despair about those impulses, about people who have shifted. Those are the most interesting ones, I think. People who have shifted out who once were a conflict entrepreneur like Curtis, right? And aren't anymore. Those are the stories to tell. And they're just as true, if not more true, they're more representative. And then for regular people, it's about not sharing violent, degrading memes or jokes. It's about not calling out the other side. That doesn't work. Like, have we not noticed? That doesn't work. <laughs> Call out the people in your group and do it when it's uncomfortable for you, right? Not when it's easy. And do it without an audience if you possibly can. Because again, humiliating people will just feed this conflict. So the interesting thing that Curtis has learned is, you know what, this is really hard to interrupt. Because once again, with gang conflict, there are people who are driving the conflict without ever picking up a gun, but they have a million followers on social media you know, maybe they're a rapper, maybe there's something else, and they are driving these storylines, right? So it feels overwhelming, just like in politics, because how can he ever convince them to stop doing this when they don't feel guilty? But what he's found is, I mean, there's a bunch of things he says in this recent podcast we did, but what he's found is you can get 20 other people together who have slightly smaller circles of influence or followers and get them all to be on the same page and say similar things you can actually have an influence not only just in sheer numbers 
but it will start to affect the guy who has a million followers because he'll start to notice. So what I wanna leave people with is that idea that if there's enough of us out there who don't wanna see more political violence and we feel powerless, there are way more of us if we act together and we have way more impact than we think we do. When you talk about calling out your own side as one way to counter this, don't you risk falling into a false equivalence? You know, it was only Trump supporters who attacked the Capitol on January 6th. There was, contrary to what President Trump said, there was no Antifa, there were no false flag operation, there were no Democrats. So what is the other side that needs to be called out that you're speaking of? Yeah, the things that need to be called out are the things when people talk about each other as if they are less than human, which I have heard my friends on the left do many times. When they talk about the other side as if they are beyond religion, as if the only solution is domination or annihilation, that is very dangerous. So. I wish that calling out the other side worked. <laughs> I really do. It doesn't work. That's not how humans operate in groups in conflict. And we see it again and again, that when Democrats condemn political violence on the other side, it can actually backfire, right? So you need Republicans to condemn acts of violence by other Republicans, even if they didn't do it themselves, right? And right now it is true that the right is responsible for much more of the violent, degrading rhetoric and actions. That was not always true, and I don't think it always will be true in the future. It used to be the left was much more violent than the right in this country in the 60s. Now, does that mean I'm making a moral equivalence? No, it means we are all human. The number one predictor of what party you're affiliated with is what family you're born into. So, you know, yes, we make choices and we should be accountable for those choices. But the idea that there's some kind of bright line separating us, I no longer, I no longer can believe. You mentioned Curtis Toller, and I really um, recommend people listening to this podcast, listen to your podcast, the, your conversation with him on your podcast, How To, uh, is really remarkable, and he's clearly a, a very remarkable figure. Um, what do you feel like you learned from him just hanging out with him and seeing him in his own environment, working with gangs? What struck you the most? I love learning from Curtis because first of all, he's funny, he has great stories, and he's not easily demoralized by a really hard conflict because and, he's seen and, it And all. we, we and, should, uh, I, I probably skipped over it. It's useful to give some context. He was a gang member. He was shot twice. He was jailed. And now he works as a violence interrupter. Have I missed any key elements of his biography to Yeah, it's an it's an epic story that, you know, I, I tell in detail in the book. It's it's an incredible story, the amount of violence that he witnessed uh, as a as a kid and then joined his first gang at age nine. 
Um, but what's most remarkable is this decision he makes to leave the conflict after over a decade as a pretty high ranking leader of a particular organization in Chicago. So he makes this decision and kind of painstakingly, I mean, it's the loneliest time in his life, um, leaves the conflict and it's not easy to do and it's not linear. And now he works with an organization called Chicago Cred that helps uh, other people make that shift in Chicago out of gang violence. But the greatest thing of all is talking to Curtis in rooms of people who are dealing with other kinds of conflict that are not quite as violent yet. Like he and I had dinner with a group of Senate staffers uh, the other day. And it's really helpful because the things he asks young men and women to do in Chicago to refrain from humiliating each other on social media, to agree to some baseline norms. We have not asked members of Congress to do. So when you say this to members of Congress, you know, look, could you imagine getting a small group of people together to come up with like some kind of basic norms? What they say is you're talking to the wrong person. I'm not the one causing all the and they feel powerless. And that's totally normal in high conflict. Everyone feels powerless, right? But when you have Curtis in the room, he'll say, well, of course, of course, you're not the one generating all the trouble, but this is where it starts, right? And so if he can get these guys to not always, but occasionally come up with a peace treaty, these guys who are living with much more trauma and violence and risk than any of these members of Congress yet, why can't we get them to do it? You know what I mean? So the analogy is really powerful. And from in a weird, maybe perverse way, it gives me hope to hear Curtis's stories and to learn from what he's learned. Um, because things can get worse, <laughs> make no mistake. Amanda, talk about your own experience that drew you to want to cover and write about conflict. Well, you know, it's only recently that I've put these connected these dots, but I grew up with a fair amount of conflict um, in my home between my parents. And, you know, it wasn't terrible, but it was uh, kind of this everyday low running anxiety you know i so i i spent a lot of time monitoring that conflict which i would not recommend to any children listening it's not it doesn't actually help you but at the time i would you know listen to all my parents fights um from upstairs i would kind of keep an eye on the conflict and i think that made me feel like maybe i could you know predict it or control it or contain it which of course i couldn't as a kid but um Conversely, my brother would go out and play in the woods, which is a better, um, a better tactic, I think, as a kid. And that's conflict avoidance, right? Uh, which is what most of us are, is avoidant of conflict. And that brings its own challenges as an adult. Um, but in any case, as, a, as an adult, I found that I really enjoyed journalism for lots of reasons. And one of them was, um, it was a way to keep monitoring the conflicts, all the conflicts all around us all the time, right? To, to feel safe because I was keeping an eye on the worst things that could happen. And I, you know, I covered crime, I covered terrorism, I covered 9-11 in depth, I covered disasters, Hurricane Katrina, all kinds of terrible things. 
And I think, again, I didn't realize this at the time, but I think it was a way to kind of feel like I had a role that was safe um, in conflict. And then once our political conflicts really started to get crazy and it felt like I couldn't understand the conflict anymore, it kind of forced me to, to realize there was a lot about conflict that, um, that I was missing. And so I spent years, you know, getting trained in conflict mediation, following people who understand conflict intimately in all different settings. And I learned that there was a lot I was, I was just not aware of when it comes to conflict. And that like, has been like really what? helpful. Well, like, okay, for example, every conflict has the thing it seems to be about, um, whether it's abortion or taxes or you know, uh, you know, anti-Semitism or any number of things. And then the thing is also really about, which I call the understory. So that's the thing that is the most interesting and important part of the conflict. And the thing we almost never talk about, and we certainly don't write about in journalism. So as an example, every, every divorce lawyer has stories like this, where, you know, just take an extreme example, where the couple in an ugly divorce will just go to war over some possession, right? There's lots of examples. One that I write about is about a set of Legos that, um, you know, who was gonna get the Legos? Another was about an old barbecue, old grill. Who was gonna get the grill? And, you know, it doesn't make sense because the amount of money the couple spending on lawyers would be enough to buy all of the Legos in all of the lands many times <laughs> over. But uh, it's because they're not talking about the understory. So in that case, if you ask the right questions and make people feel heard, you could find out that, for example, the Legos, wherever the Legos go, that's where the kid's affection goes. That's what the kid cares most about. And the parents are both worried that they are going to lose the kid's affection. Or, um, you know, in the case of, I write about a crock pot that this couple's fighting over. Well, the, the woman had put the crock pot on their wedding registry because when she was a kid, her mom used to cook in a crock pot every Sunday and it made everything smell good all day long. And she had wanted to create that kind of home for their family. And the truth is that had never happened, that neither she nor her husband ever cooked, but she held on to that dream. So she wanted the goddamn crock pot, right? Like you can understand that. But then why did he want it? What's the understory for him? Well, it turns out he wanted it because she wanted it so much and she had wanted the whole divorce, which he hadn't wanted. Hmm. Right. So it doesn't solve the problem, but you, you can actually get to a lot more interesting, useful conversations, right. Once you understand the understory of a conflict, you can move to the source and you stop arguing about Legos and talk about yeah. the kids. Right. You can get out of like, who's right, who's wrong, who did what to whom. I mean, that's all fine, but we can get really stuck there, you know. <laughs> Last year, you profiled uh, now uh, Congresswoman Becca Ballant in a uh, an episode on your podcast uh, called How to Run for Office Without Being a Jerk. And you paired uh, Representative Ballant with um, Utah Governor Spencer Cox, um, a Republican, what drew you to those two and and had you had you stumble across becca ballant uh, who at the time was not a congresswoman she was just a candidate running for congress in vermont 
You know, I am so glad that I did stumble across Becca because I've learned a lot from her and I loved doing that episode. But I think this, I think, I, I think what happened was somehow someone heard that she was, uh, had read my book, High Conflict and was applying it in her own work as a state legislator in Vermont. And I thought, well, that's cool. That's interesting. And we started emailing and she told me some stories about what that looked like. Like when, for example, she realized how powerful humiliation is and how often perceived humiliation is driving conflict and no one's talking about it, then she could do something about that. She could try to uh, make someone who felt humiliated feel respected, right? And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, they could solve problems and get things done for the people of Vermont. And so I thought that was fascinating to learn how she was taking these ideas and applying them to politics. And then when I heard she was running for Congress, you know, I didn't say this to her, but I was like, well, that's great, but I doubt you're going to win this way <laughs> because, you know, it's really hard. This system is a high conflict system and it's set up for that. But then uh, she persevered and she was in the middle of that race. And I asked her to come on the show with Spencer Cox, who also has really worked hard to resist the forces of uh, high conflict. And uh, it was she was really crazy busy running around trying to raise money and you know get attention and do all the things that our crazy system forces candidates to do. But she did uh, come on the show and it was just a, a delightful thing to hear these two people who come from very different places, very different points of view, but share this like real deep hope that there's another way to do politics. Do you think that can transfer over to the the um, the brass knuckles of Washington politics and of a deeply polarized and and you'd have to say dysfunctional Congress? Well, that's the question, isn't it? <laughs> You're going to have to have Becca on in six months. Um, I think so. I have seen members of Congress who've been there lo longer than Becca uh, do that. And what you notice when you you know, I, I've talked with members of Congress, you know, many times. And what you notice is they're mostly miserable. Like they don't, they didn't actually want to be in a, a constant fight where there's so much hostility all around. Nobody really wants to go to work in that environment. Mm -hmm. Most of them actually want to get things done for their constituents. Uh, most of them do not like feeling hated. None of them like to have to hire armed guards to protect their family. So that level of misery is the same in every high conflict I've ever seen, whether it's gang members or uh, people in an ugly divorce, like they are miserable and they want a way out if only they could find one. So there's a huge opportunity there. And it's, it's politicians like Becca, like Spencer, who can offer another way. And if you get enough of them and you empower them and you support them, then there it becomes possible for people to do politics differently and that's a long and difficult road but it is possible well i'm going to be very interested to have becca back on the vermont conversation i'm giving her a few months because uh <laughs> i need this story to sort of percolate a bit and um and get her impression you know, she's already doing it you know i mean i don't know if she told you the story but she uh i ran into her she was at the library of congress for the orientation for new members with her family and it was so great to see her there. And she was 
checking out. There's a special room just for members of Congress in the library, uh, a reading room, beautiful space. And almost none of them ever go there because they have no time. They're just constantly double booked in meetings and fundraising and just, you know, flying back and forth. I mean, it's, it's a really not an easy life. But she told me how she had already at the freshman orientation for new members uh, sat down and had breakfast with a group of Republicans and um, how at first they just assumed she was a Republican too, because it just doesn't happen that the Democrats and Republicans talk to each other at breakfast, believe it or not. And uh, eventually, you know, it became clear that she was a Democrat. And um, she basically said, look, if we can't share a muffin together, then this whole country is doomed. <laughs> and so, uh, and since then, you know, they've acknowledged each other in the hallways and, you know, we'll see where, where that goes. But in her own small ways, I think she's, she's trying to create good conflict instead of bad. One of the stories this past year that got shared to me a, a remarkable number of times by friends was a kind of confession that you wrote in the Washington Post that you stopped paying attention to the news or at least put yourself on a pretty uh, extreme news diet. And you have cited the statistic that uh, Reuters uh, published that four of 10 people sometimes or actively avoid the news, and that figure is rising. Um, and you also said you were stunned by the response that you got. Uh, and you asked the question, what's wrong with the news? And you asked uh, your own audience, uh, you know, followers, how would you want it? to be better. How do you answer that question? And talk about what is actually going on for you, the news diet that you put yeah. yourself on. I went on a news cleanse, I guess you could say. Um, but no, so yeah, I, I found that, I mean, I used to read a lot of news, I consumed a lot of news, and it was part of my identity as a journalist, but I also kind of enjoyed it. You know, I felt like I would read, you know, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and, you know, other things and I would feel more curious about the world and not less afterward. Um, and somewhere along the line, you know, I just started feeling the last few years less curious and more depressed every time I would read the news. And first I just felt really embarrassed about this because, you know, like I told you, I had covered a lot of tough things and it was part of my identity to think I was pretty tough and why couldn't I read the news, you know, for God's sake. Uh, but then eventually I started hearing from other journalist friends who also were limiting their news intake. Um, and then I started to think, well, maybe, you know, part of the problem is how we decide what is news and how we frame the news. And part of the problem is definitely our political polarization because the news has gotten much more negative as a result of that polarization. And there's lots of different reasons for that. But part of it is honestly, journalists are human <laughs> they are they are in the conflict you know they're not separate and they feel frustrated that they cannot have the impact they once had that no matter how many times they count trump's lies it doesn't matter it just doesn't matter so he, his support doesn't seem to be affected and that is a really unsettling for journalists um who hold on to facts like they're a religion you know and so uh i started trying to do the one thing i know how to do which is to report report and report and i figured 
that I would talk to people who understand what humans need. What information do we really need and want? And what, what, what is healthy? Because we do need to be informed, right? And eventually I came to the conclusion that there were three things missing from a lot of coverage. And the first is hope. And the second is agency, a sense that if you can't do something, then someone somewhere is trying at least. And the third thing is dignity, you know, a sense that we matter in the world. Um, so this takes different forms in different places for different people, but you get the idea that, you know, there's a lot of news out there that is really helpful and useful, but those things are often missing. What would that look like in a typical news article about a culture war issue today, like uh, abortion? How could that story be told differently in a way that just didn't lead you either enraged or depressed, which is how I often finish yeah. an article about that. Right, right. no, it, well, it's funny you should ask because um, I ended up um, founding a company with a journalist colleague named Helen Bianduti Hofer. And this is all we do is try to figure that out. You know, what would that look like? And so we experiment with different ways of covering conflict. And she actually just did a local TV news pilot where she did an actual segment on abortion and tried to do it differently according to everything we know from psychology, from neuroscience, from mediation about what humans need in conflict to, to make decisions and thrive. And so she focused on faith leaders in Rochester, New York, and she asked them um, different questions than the ones that journalists normally ask. And she asked them to share personal stories. She asked them what they were conflicted about internally when it comes to abortion um, and what you got. And then also she did this thing uh, called looping, which we learned from Gary Friedman and his colleagues um, who are mediators, but we now train, we've trained over a thousand journalists on this. It's a form of listening where you really, really try to listen to the other person and prove to them that you've heard them. So she's doing these things, which most journalists are not trained to do. And she got just such surprising, interesting material. Because, you know, just as an example, one of the ministers told her that when he was in high school, he's, he's you know, pro-life. And, um, but when he was in high school, his girlfriend called him and thought she was pregnant. And he had this sudden reckoning with what this would mean for him and what should he do and what should they do. And, and he told her afterward that he'd never talked about it publicly because there wasn't the space for that kind of complexity, right? In this debate. Um, and so she, she put it all together and the segment is 10 minutes, which is considered an eternity in TV news, as you know, but it's really cool. And I think, you know, she's shown it to some focus groups and it's out there publicly available if anyone wants to watch it. And I think it's a good example of how you can make this stuff interesting without collapsing into two camps, right? Because the truth is, most Americans have very complicated feelings about abortion. They are not on one extreme or the other. And we, can, we should stop writing about it that way. One of the hallmarks of your writing is you are scrupulously fact-based. You are a big fan of evidence-based reporting. And so there's, you cite lots of interesting studies uh, to back up things that you say. 
but we're living in a time when fewer and fewer people are listening or care about facts. They are comfortably living in their own reality, tuning into media that, if, uh, that keeps them in that bubble. How do you break through? Yes, you've now articulated the central um, heartbreak of, of my life, which is facts and studies and evidence do not have the persuasive power that I always dreamed they would uh, and thought they would. Um, so what I've shifted to doing is trying to, to understand emotion and behavior. And you can actually, there's amazing studies that are done on these things, so you can still use evidence. But I try, I try to um, loosen my grip on the idea that, first of all, I can persuade anyone with argument, and also that facts will persuade. And I try to understand why people are doing the things they're doing. Because, you know, while facts don't have the effect I want them to have, other things do. Relationships, hope, which we've talked about, fear, which is probably the driving currency of our time. Um, those things really matter. And so the more I can understand them, I feel like the, the more the world makes sense. And um, it's liberating, although painful, to try to, you know, let go of some of that um, delusion that, that you can persuade people using facts. Have you found a way, you know, when somebody, well, for example, um, I was, when I looked at your Twitter feed, uh, I saw that you had this, you know, as I mentioned earlier, a whole sequence of uh, a thread of tweets about how to prevent another January 6th. And there was predictably a snarky response that said, uh, quote, how to prevent January 6th? Don't let the establishment steal an election again. Mm. And so there you have it. Your um, carefully uh, laid argument <laughs> based on evidence is dismissed by somebody who believes in something that is demonstrably false. Um, I, I think as a journalist and as an author who is just working so hard and i admire you know the um the level of detail that you go into in these things have you found something that works to communicate to somebody who at least in the beginning of your conversation operates from a completely different fact set than you do yeah i mean i feel like first of all i'm glad to get those messages because it's a reality check for me to remember that you know, like I said earlier, two thirds of Republicans say they think January 6th was a legitimate political protest. So, you know, I don't think I'm always going to be able to speak to everyone all at once. Right. But what's really scary is if there's no one out there even listening who disagrees with me. Right. Like that, that would be worse. Um, and I fear that that's happening. Increasingly, the places I write for are just not believed by half the country. And I don't think they're always doing enough to try to rebuild that relationship. So um, I don't think you can do, you can't do everything all at once. There are certain subjects that are especially hard to do that with, right? Um, 
that January 6th would be one. I think if, if we were in person, I would love to talk with that person about what they said. I would, I would first, the first thing I would do, and this is new, this is not what I would have done six or eight years ago. I would first try to make sure I understood what they were saying, because what I've learned is like half the time you really don't. And either way, they need to feel heard before they will listen, just like we all do. So I would, you know, I would literally try to get super curious about that comment. And then once I really understood what they're actually trying to communicate, I would ask a bunch of questions. We began this conversation with me asking you about, you know, what you saw when you saw the attack on the Capitol two years ago, January 6th. And you began by saying you were not surprised as somebody who has been researching conflict and political violence. And, and, and we're having this conversation now seeing, the, you know, essentially a copycat attack in Brazil. What gives you hope that we can move to a better place? Well, I think it's always really helpful to be reminded that um, most Americans are yearning for something different. That no one, with a few exceptions, almost no one is really happy with the way politics is happening, the way the news is covered, uh, the way we are treating each other. And I think there is huge opportunity there. And if there's one thing I know about this country, it's that it's filled with people who know how to seize opportunity, especially if there's money to be made. <laughs> I think there is money to be made from doing journalism differently, for example. Um, politics might be harder, right? You need to make system-wide reforms in these institutions and in the regulation of social media and other things, right? And at the same time, I think that widespread dissatisfaction is what we need to change this. I don't think we're going to get there um, if, if people were just kind of like indifferent, and I don't think they are. Well, Amanda Ripley, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me. 